This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's very important that we defend human rights because our near peer competitors tend to not defend human rights or they have a, a human rights record that is unacceptable. And when you have near peer competitors that are gaining power in the international system, that could be influential to other countries to feel that the human rights abuses that they're involved in, it's okay to support. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. This episode in our Women in the Military series features Asha Castleberry Hernandez, currently a senior advisor in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department and a major in the U.S. Army Reserves. We talked about strategic competition in the Middle East and how the United States should engage in the region. It's an area and a topic she knows well after serving as a military officer in Jordan, Kuwait, Iraq, and Qatar. Asha, welcome back to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Well, we were thrilled to have you as part of our Women in the Military series back in August for the conversation that we had on leadership in the military. And today, I just am thrilled to have you here to talk about you and your journey and the work that you're doing currently at the State Department. But we're going to start with uh, your, your military career. You're currently a major in the U.S. Army Reserves, and previously you were deployed to Kuwait, Iraq, Qatar and Jordan as a military officer. What sparked your interest in the Middle East? Thank you so much. What sparked my interest in the Middle East was actually uh, when I was a graduate student at Columbia University studying Middle Eastern policy, the Middle East region. And um, at that time, I was actually intrigued to learn more about it during the spark of the Arab Spring which I observed how the Arab Spring just completely transformed the region and it brought on new challenges for the region. And also it taught us more about where we are in our current state in terms of our foreign policy and how the population within the region feels about overall dynamics when it comes to economics, when it comes to just opportunities it politically, you know, just in multiple domains. So it definitely was a transformation not only for the region, but also for U.S. foreign policy. And how much time did you spend in the region when you were serving in the military? Wow, almost about three years. And by all means, it was just an absolutely exciting opportunity because for many reasons. One, I had no idea that I would be just the leading effort when it came to boosting our relations with our Gulf allies. Uh, mainly in Kuwait, worked with the Ministry of Defense. I've also had the opportunity to work with outstanding women in the JAF or the Jordanian Armed Forces, learn about their work and how we can provide consultation them when it comes to serving as outstanding women in the military and also working in major military exercises that were orchestrated by CENTCOM. So I was able to work in uh, multi-lat exercises, combined joint exercises with just different allies in the region, going from Egypt all the way to the Gulf, 
and also including the Jordanians, the laugh. And I learned as a woman, especially a woman of color from the United States, that you can make a difference when it comes to military diplomacy, providing consultation or exchanging ideas, interoperability with your Middle Eastern allies, which I didn't think women actually had a role in. So, you know, in the near future, like I said in the last podcast interview, I'm looking for more female leadership in this region, especially having our first female CENTCOM commander, having more female U.S. ambassadors. So it was just extremely invaluable uh, experience overall. And I'll just end on this point as far as my work. I did a lot in terms of security cooperation, which I just elaborated where we were working on interoperability activities from bilateral exercises to multilateral exercises. But also, too, I had the chance to actually serve on a counterterrorism mission, which is known as Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherit Resolve. And that was a surprise to me because at that time, Daesh, also known as ISIS, just came out, swept through from Syria all the way from Al-Raqqa into Baghdad and took a significant amount of grounded areas in Iraq. And so the Iraqis at that time lost about 60% of their country. So we were the first wave to come in and help them with their counteroffensive missions. And again, not a lot of women in that type of role, but it was extremely invaluable to work with the Iraqis, especially observing how, how much they were under pressure because you're seeing this non-state actor known as ISIS completely take over their territory and they're trying to fight it back. And at the same time, we're trying to compel them to embrace national reconciliation, also embrace working together, whereas the Sunni, Kurds, and Shia. So it was a, a lot of different dynamics that we work on at the same time, but extremely invaluable. You mentioned in that last position that you noted there that uh, there weren't a lot of women in that type of position. What was it like and were there any specific lessons you learned? Well, you know, when you're in, in, in uniform, you get, you're kind of, it starts to become more normalized to you that you're just the only women in so many different situations. So in the beginning, you know, I, I looked around and said, wow, there's no women. I'm, I'm actually the only one in the room. And especially, I remember one night after the Iraqis defeated ISIS, and it was one of their first counteroffensive missions that they actually defeated ISIS. I remember being in the Ministry of Defense with all these generals from from Iraq and and also uh, our U.S. leadership. And we were so happy that we won, we finally won a uh, counteroffensive against Daesh. But, and, you know, and it was a lot of us in the room, and I'm just looking around like, wow, there's no women there are no women in this in this room that can actually celebrate this moment that we're winning back areas. So, you know, it, it, it was definitely a concern. And then on a policy perspective, most of these areas that are impacted from conflict, a majority of them are women and children. So, you know, you, it's very important to integrate that female perspective when it comes to operations so that the men that are in place they are playing a part in these operations. They understand that, hey, we need this gender perspective included when it comes to this area because a majority of them are women. So that was uh, extremely important. And then we also had this issue involving, in terms of policy, a lot of uh, uptick of women that were embracing suicidal bombing issues. So we had to get more women involved in those type of discussions too as well. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when you were here before talking about leadership, I didn't actually ask you what led you to join the Army. So I get a second chance to ask you that question this time because we've been asking some of the women in, in that we've talked to for the Women in the Military series, you know, what made them choose their specific service. Yes, uh, I would say there's several reasons. So I joined at 17 and one is I wanted to learn leadership. I thought the military provided a lot of opportunities to embrace leadership in a unique way compared to the private sector. And what's awesome about the U.S. Army is that you automatically learn to be a leader. They provide you the training, the tools, the education, the opportunities to learn to become a leader. So that's one reason too, of course, like a lot of Americans, you want a job, you want to be commissioned in the military and and serve as a second lieutenant or a commissioned officer. But at that time, I, I must underscore that that was a difficult decision because we were right during that time, Operation During Freedom in Iraq, where a lot of young people were adapting to a new evolution of warfare where it, it, we, we were adapting to, I would say, counterterrorism, and we were used to jungle warfare style. So a lot of young people actually were passing away or killed as a result of being involved in counterterrorism missions. And, you know, I remember watching um, a lot of young people coming back to Dover uh, Air Force Base in body bags because they served in wars like Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, 9-11, I was in New York when 9-11 happened. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to join too, because I wanted to defend my country. I'm very patriotic. And last but not least, I was also inspired by people like General Powell, Condoleezza Rice, get into national security. I remember at 16 years old, when I saw them out there in the White House lawn, standing there with President Bush as national security advisors or the top senior officials. It was inspiring to see people that look like me that were leading the way in this effort. So those are my three main reasons. Uh huh. And I also want to ask you about something else you did before we pivot to talk about what you're doing today. You were an, an election observer in El Salvador and you worked on Southcom's peacekeeping operations in Nicaragua. What was that like? And how did that fit in with the work that you did in the Middle East? And were there separate lessons that you learned or were there things that you learned in one place you were able to apply in the other? Yes, thank you for the question. I really love this question because this is the one moment in my life that I learned a lot about democracy. And I, I, this was the first time I was able to, at a, at, in my early 20s, to compare our democracy with a democracy in another country and find out that, wow, America actually has a lot, a lot more democratic rights or their, their institutions are a lot stronger compared to others where their democracies are kind of, you know, somewhat fragile. So as an election observer, I was able to actually witness the elections in 2009 for the presidential elections. And at that time, President uh, Funes uh, won. And so the elections were pretty historical. The people there were inspired to vote for a FMLN candidate, which was uh, extremely historical. And they were inspired by our elections, President Barack Obama, when he won, because at that time, you know, he was the first black president. And, you know, during that experience, I found out that, you know, you saw people there dealing with voter fraud, voting out of cardboard boxes, you know, had 
identification issues. There was also issues involving the tribunal process. So there were some challenges that we definitely saw. And, and I will tell you that was, such, that was so beneficial. Just to actually know the, the Spanish language really helped me navigate the environment, understand what the people were talking about, also to communicate to the people where they need to go to vote. So it so as an American, it's really important to know a second language, especially if you're engaged with these missions overseas. And and I was able to pick up a lot of experiences from knowing Spanish. And then I did the same thing in, in uh, the Middle East where I was able to actually learn the language and be able to understand more the people and their interests. So, you know, for the most part, my my experience working as election observer, then also in Nicaragua doing peacekeeping missions, I learned a lot about fragile democracies and how it's not, like Condoleezza Rice says, it takes time to strengthen those democracies. And as a foreign policy, a foreign policy expert, it is in, it is our responsibility to communicate to the American people. We have to implement strategic patience when it comes to these countries and not look down on them because there are some struggles here. And, uh, you know, as Americans, we tend to like things short, quick and, and judge. But for the most part, we should also, too, appreciate the democracy we have today. It's not perfect, but we should always find a way to improve it. And one last question before we pivot to your job today. Are there challenges that you saw during your experiences in El Salvador and uh, Nicaragua that may still be policy issues that the United States either is impacted by today or should be dealing with today? I would say that you learn a lot about the history, the economic conditions, as well as the political conditions that pretty much develops a narrative to you that there's a there's some challenges there. And, and because the people face these enduring challenges that creates perpetual poverty, that limits economic opportunities, you know, and then also you have some issues involving violence, many of them just don't want to stay there. And when you're south of a rich country like the United States, many of them feel, I need to, you know, migrate to the United States. So I think one thing I I learned for the most part is that as an American, we should definitely learn more about what's south of us and understand the perpetual challenges that many of them deal with and also allow that to shape your foreign policy perspective on how we can better work with Central America. Well, I promised I would fast forward to what you're doing today. You are currently working in the Biden administration as a senior advisor for the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department, and your priority area is strategic competition and soft power. So first question, can you explain a bit more about your work and and how it's related to strategic competition? Sure. So at its core, strategic competition is about who present the most compelling vision of shared prosperity, sustainable partnership, and mutual security. So for over 75 years, the United States has defended the rule-based international system that has been enabled our security and prosperity. So that order, right, at the value of, of institutions has offered a vision for a world based on self-determination, respect, human rights, open, prosperous economies, and stability. 
So it's in our responsibility to defend the rule-based order, not just because, oh, we want to do it. It's because it helps bring global stability. So as far as our work, we allow that to shape how we are going to work in this era of strategic competition. So let me be more specific. So when you think of human rights, it's very important that we defend human rights because our near peer competitors tend to not defend human rights or they have a, a human rights record that is unacceptable. And why is that important is because when you have near peer competitors that are gaining power in the international system, that could be influential to other countries to feel that the human rights abuses that they're involved in, it's okay to support. So it's very important that the United States defends it. Also, when it comes to the rule-based system, it's very important that we're involved in economic diplomacy, trade. So in my work, we try to make sure that we're, in, we're engaged with new trade opportunities or economic opportunities. I'll give you one example. Right now, we've had about $157 billion in trade between Middle East North Africa countries and United States in 2019. The year before the pandemic and post-pandemic, as our economies recover, we will build on trade relationships. So we're constantly involved in finding trade opportunities, strengthen our trade ties that we have now. And Ambassador Tai is really, really, really focused on making sure that we are doing that type of work. That's Catherine, Catherine Tai, the USTR. Yes, exactly. Also, too, going back to the point of diplomacy, we are really into making sure that we promote more multilateralism in partnerships. So what, what's interesting about the Middle East North Africa is that we've had the opportunity to form new partnerships. Like, for instance, just recently between the UAE Israel and India, we're working very closely with them in terms of, you know, technological ties, business ties. And this is very important when it comes to strategic competition. And then we also have the Abraham Accords, where there is just a sweeping, growing interest into normalizing relationships with Israel. That is really good when it comes to bringing peace and security in the region. And um, it's something that United States is in the lead to making sure that that relationship when it comes to Abraham Accords is strengthened by all means. And also to going back to strengthening IOs and defending international organizations, we are we are extremely involved in that as well. So when you look at the situation on Lebanon, for instance, Lebanon, we are urging the new government to urgently implement reforms that can help st- stabilize the country's crashing economic crisis and create greater accountability and transparency. So we are also continuing to stand with the Lebanese people and key institutions in Lebanon. So defending democratic institutions for us in the region is uh, very important. Yeah, and I I think uh, also too, what we do as far as when it comes to strategic competitions to ensure that we are not leaving the region, we are staying in the region we are not abandoning our allies, and that is very, very important to communicate by all means. So those are the several things that we're working on. Uh-huh. And if I could just uh, follow up on the last part of that, that question where you said that the U.S. is not leaving the region, how is it approaching policy in the Middle East following the Afghanistan withdrawal and the, and the Taliban takeover there? Well, we're, we're still engaged. Our embassies are still engaged with our partners on so many different domains. 
focusing on economics, technology, you know, building partnerships with new allies, including, you know, the youth. Again, underscoring these new partnerships, you know, we're, we're still active when it comes to our defense policy. And I want to definitely thank, you know, when it comes to Afghanistan, the Qataris, the, the great work they've done to uh, support us when it comes to SIVs. And that was recognized by Secretary Antonio Blinken, as well as Secretary Austin. So we're still engaged. We haven't abandoned the region and we're still uh, working with our partners on multiple issues. So just want to make that very clear. Right, right, right. And there is a, a focus on Asia as well from the administration. What should the U.S. do to, to make sure that it does stay engaged in the Middle East? You've said that, you know, we're staying in the region, but I ask it to make this point, you know, how do you stay engaged to the point that our strategic competitors don't gain an upper hand in the Middle East? Okay, that's an excellent point. So when it comes to our near-peer competitors, especially China, it's very important that we all know how we're approaching our near-peer competitor, like the PRC. So for instance, just like what POTUS said, we have bucketed into three different buckets. One is competition. The other one is cooperation. And then here and there at being, you know, adversarial. So it's very important that we know that it's in those three type of buckets. The, the cooperation piece is very important to understand because my, by all means, we're working very closely with them when it comes to climate changes, when it comes to nuclear nonproliferation, like uh, the Iran deal, and also when it comes to health diplomacy, like combat and COVID-19. So that's very important that we stay engaged with China, which which our partners in the region are part of that process too, whether it's involved in a multilat like the Paris Accord, also the Iran deal, our partners are part, part of that and China is part of that process too. So um, some of these global challenges that we deal with, it's orchestrated by a multilat that involves our near peer competitors. Also, when it comes to China, we have to make sure that our relationship with the PRC is based on long-term global competition that will shape not just our future, but the children's future. We can't take for granted the freedoms and global opportunities we enjoy if China dictates how its citizens are allowed to interact with their governments and one another, but we need to do our best today to allow our future generations to enjoy a stable, prosperous, and secure region. So there are engagements that China is involved that kind of undermines that effort. And it's very important in the region that we counter those efforts because it, it goes against the strategic goal of making sure that the region is stable, prosperous, and secure. Should we be concerned about our strategic competitors like China, like Russia, taking our place in the region? Or is that not something that should be of concern? We should, uh, because when it comes to the international rule-based system, that is something that they don't defend. And again, the international rule-based system is very important that it's continuously implemented because it brings in global stability. So American leadership is essential when it comes to restoring the international rule-based system. And, you know, this is why we have to stay engaged with our near-peer competitors, because when we don't, they go against those values or those principles involved in the rule-based system, like when it comes to human rights. You know, that's a, a big deal. And it's very important that as a superpower, 
we are ensuring that we're using multilateralism with our partners to address the human rights issues. So yes, it is a concern and um, it's very important that the United States continues its leadership as far as promoting the rule-based order. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we begin to wrap up here, I have one question that I want to pivot to a a bit. I know that President Biden has talked a lot about the foreign policy for the middle class and how does the strategy in the Middle East fit into that? And talk a bit more about what your bureau is doing on this topic. Yes. So when it comes to climate changes, I think that's a good place to start with because we're we're extremely engaged with identifying green opportunities, building green a global green economy where we're investing in renewable energy and also use that as a job creation tactic. And that alone helps produce opportunities for both Americans as well as our allies in the Middle East, North Africa. So uh, you have Secretary Kerry, who is engaged in this, and he's doing a fantastic job tirelessly working with our Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, who has a big green initiative going on there, as well as the UAE, to ensure that those opportunities are worked on, built up, and implemented. And then when you look at COVID-19 as well, we help combat COVID-19 with our Middle Eastern allies by providing vaccines, also opportunities when it comes to PPE. So we are involved in a global distribution there as well. And, you know, what we're trying to do is ensure that how can we work together to better prevent a future pandemic? So it's very important that we work with our allies when it comes to those efforts. Also, when it comes to education, That's uh, our top priority too as well. International education is something that we're working on to ensure that young people or students in the region are able to come here and engage in the American education system and vice versa. So they can understand, build up relationships, understand our culture more. I know at one point before this administration that was cut off, but we're rebuilding up those opportunities So education is extremely important. And also, too, when it comes to our defense, we still have our security cooperation activities going on where we are helping to work very closely with our allies on interoperability, making sure that they're able to defend themselves when it comes to their own sovereignty. So that is, too, going on as well. And when you think about security cooperation, how does that intersect with the middle class? Well, a lot of people in the middle class, especially people like me, uh, serve in the military and are offered the opportunity to work with our Middle Eastern allies and build relationships to help produce this security cooperation effort. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's cross-cutting. Also, too, when it comes to technology, we're very, we're extremely engaged when it comes to technological ties. Many American companies are working in the Middle East uh, to, you know, beef up our technological opportunities there. And it's such a fantastic opportunity or time to see how the Middle East, there's an uptick in, you know, financial investments, fintech. And, you know, we have a lot of American companies that are involved in that. So a lot of it definitely intersects. We just have to sit back and think about it, but it's definitely cross-cutting in multiple domains. Asha Castleberry Hernandez, thank you so much for spending time with me. I appreciate it. This has been a fascinating conversation. And as I like to say, thank you for your service. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash tech unmanned.